I know everyone is eager for a little light fare this morning. The consequences of the fall. Just a little something bright and chipper to start our day. As we're continuing our, our study through our confession of faith here in chapter 6 of the fall of man, of sin, and the punishment thereof, we're going to be looking today at paragraph 2 and, and the doctrine contained there. And what we're going to be looking at from a, an introductory standpoint is the, the doctrine of total depravity. And what, what paragraph 2 asserts are these things which are an immediate consequence of the fall. Those things which are an immediate consequence of the fall. We spent the last two weeks, as we looked at paragraph 1, looking at what's, what's the actual nature of the sin that Adam and Eve committed. And it was certainly a sin against the law of nature, the moral law inscribed on their heart, but particularly there was a positive law that Adam broke willfully, uh, rebelliously. He sinned against the specific command not to eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so therein, as we saw last week, Adam broke the covenant of works. The covenant of works was quite simply do this and live, do this other thing which is prohibited, and you die. And so today we'll begin to look at what are the consequences of this. And, and we're going to look at this at two levels. One, in the immediate sense, for Adam and Eve. In that immediate sense, for Adam and Eve. The actual human beings, the literal historical human beings that were our first parents. But then also, what are the imputed effects? Because it was not Adam and Eve alone who were affected by the fall. But every man, woman, boy, and girl since then. So let's call upon the Lord and ask for the Holy Spirit to give us help as we study the Word of God together. Our God and our Father, we, we rejoice that you are an awesome God. You are our Maker. Your Word tells us that from heaven all good things come, and that all that we receive from your hand is, is by its very nature good and necessarily good. And yet we confess that we have transgressed. We have rebelled. Not only our first parents, Adam and Eve, but we uh, individually, we collectively, we corporately have sinned against you in our thoughts, our words, our deeds, and our omissions of duties. Lord, will you forgive us of our sin? Not only the sins that we do, those things which we, as acts of our, of our, of our minds and our, our tongues and our bodies, but even the predispositions to those things, the sinful nature itself. We need your grace. We need your, your forgiveness. We need your cleansing. And we praise you that in Christ we have that opportunity. We ask these things in his name. Amen. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. You'll notice in, if you have a copy of the confession that has the original footnotes in it, You'll see that Romans chapter 3 is actually cited twice here in, in paragraph 2. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 10 and read down through verse 26. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse, well, let's begin in verse 9, and I'll read down to verse 26. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. 
For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteous, his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The Lord bless the reading of his word. Notice something here. Paul is is building upon this argument. And and just to kind of briefly go through his flow of thought, in in chapter 1, he's saying that that the works of the law are written on the heart of man so that No one is without excuse. Even the invisible attributes of God are plain to man. And the problem, though, is that sinful men suppress that truth and unrighteousness. That's a universal reality. Then in chapter 2, he talks about the fact that even those who don't have the law are convicted when they transgress. Why? Because the works of the law are written on their heart. So not only does creation, chapter 1, bear witness to the fact that, that, that God is, that, that he exists, that he's made all things. And not only that he exists, but that he's good, that he's just, that he's powerful, that he's infinite. But chapter 2 in Romans, Paul builds upon the argument further that even man's own internal conscience, that, that inward voice that every man possesses, also testifies to the fact that there is an objective absolute standard of what is right and wrong. And even a Gentile, even someone who's never heard the word of God, their own conscience will accuse them when they've done wrong. And Paul says, well, see, from from these two, kind of exhibit A and exhibit B, creation itself and the inward testimony of man's conscience, it's it's plain that God exists. Then in chapter 3, he says, but here's the problem. Man has rebelled against both his creation and his inward witness. And the question is, why? Why is that the case? Well, 
It's because of the fall. We know the answer to that. It's because of the fall in Adam and Eve. And so then, so then Paul's wrestling through this. At the beginning of chapter 3, he asks this kind of rhetorical question. Well, if this is the case, okay, if both Jew and Greek are condemned before God based on indwelling sin, then are the Jews any better off? So he asked that, that question. It's a reasonable question. Are they, okay, well, are the Jews any better off then? And Paul's answer is yes. Absolutely they are, because they have the oracles of God. They have the promises of God. No other nation in all the earth had such promises and had such a covenant relationship with Yahweh. So the Jews have a tremendous advantage. But then he asks in verse 9, what then, are we Jews any better off? And he says, no. Okay, Paul, is this one of those situations that... uh, you know, one of the kings testified about your great learning has driven you mad. Paul's which which is it? Are we are we is there an advantage? Yes. Are we better off? No. Well, the advantage is you have the word of God, but if you reject that word, if you rebel against the covenant of God, you're no better off. And what he does following that beginning in verse 11, is that he, it's, it's almost a mashup of multiple references from the Psalms. He's quoting multiple Psalms here, demonstrating that this is not a new doctrine. This doctrine of depravity isn't new. This didn't come about because of the incarnation of Christ. This is not only because of apostolic witness. There are things that are revealed, things that were previously veiled, previously hidden under the Old Covenant that have now been revealed. Paul's saying, this isn't one of those things. The fallenness of man, the depravity of man, has always been known. And the psalmists repeatedly made that testimony. So the psalmist would say things like, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I believe that's Psalm 14. Then he quotes again from another psalm, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now who is they? It's every man, all those who are at enmity with God. There is no fear of God before their eyes, verse 18. Now with that in mind, that's that's the, 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 the apostolic testimony, this is the reality of man. So let's come back to our confession and see how are these things expressed. And the words are, are, are important. It's a very short paragraph, but the, the way in which it's phrased is there's some important things that we want to consider. So look with me here at paragraph 2 in chapter 6. Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and the body. Again, very, very, very brief, but here are two, two main ideas that we want to consider in this paragraph. First, because the overarching theme here in paragraph two is what are the consequences of the fall? So we saw in, in paragraph one that Adam and Eve rebelled. They transgressed this covenant of works. And then now it's, so what? What are the consequences of that? What are the implications of that? 
And so paragraph two is, is, is beginning to answer that question. And, and we see this in two levels. One, there's an immediate effect upon the actual historical husband and wife, our first parents, Adam and Eve. There's an immediate effect to them personally. But then secondarily, there is an imputed effect to the rest of us, to all of mankind. So notice here, our first parents. Well, that's a description of Adam and Eve. By this sin fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. And it's, we could stop there and, and spend weeks kind of teasing out the implications, the tragic consequences of just that statement. They fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. You know, I don't have it in my notes today. I was thinking about the quote that I read last week from Sam Renahan, is that, that Adam and Eve didn't just fall out of bed and bump their head. They plunged from orbit. And so here is, is a sense of how far they have fallen their original righteousness. They were created upright. They were created with, with the mental, the moral, the emotional, the intellectual capacity to do everything that God commanded them. I mean, imagine, we can't even really imagine this because all we know is, 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 a, is a body and a soul that's already tainted with sin. That's all we know. That's all we can really comprehend. We can, we can read in the scriptures and we can imagine what one day it will be like for us in glory. Well, we will not be, we will not have this, this sin that so easily ensnares us as the writer of Hebrews says. We won't have those, those inward temptations, those inward lusts towards sin. But Adam and Eve, while not yet glorified, they were innocent. They were upright. They had an, an, an unhindered capacity to do exactly what God had said, and even to do it with the right motives and with the right heart. I mean, because aren't we honest? If we're honest, even when we do the right things, isn't, we, 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 we can, if we're observant of our own motives, our own hearts, we, we recognize that they're tainted. You know, we, we, we will do some good thing on behalf of our neighbor, but also don't we hope somebody notices so that we can be praised? Don't we hope that there's some relational reward when a husband serves his wife and loves her as Christ loves the church, that there's still something in him that says, yeah, but I, I want a relational benefit here too. All of our, our best of deeds are still mixed. And so Adam and Eve lost that sense of original righteousness. They lost that communion with God. The scriptures tell us that Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. He, he had communion with God directly, immediately. He could be in the presence of the holy God because he was without sin. And that was lost. They, they knew a perfect peace with God. And again, in this life, in this age, because of the indwelling spirit of the living God, if you are in Christ, we have a, a foretaste of this peace with God, but we don't know it perfectly yet. Adam and Eve knew that. They knew a peace with God. They knew a peace with each other. Chapter 2 ends with, with the man and the woman were naked and they were unashamed. They, 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 there, was, there was nothing that they had to hide from one another. Nothing that they were seeking to hide from God. Nothing that they would seek to hide from anyone else. There was nothing too high. They had a complete peace of conscience. 
There was not one thing as Adam laid his head down at night that he could say, I'm guilty of this. That I've transgressed in some way. Or I've fallen short in any duty. And in that rebellion lost all of that. All that they had previously enjoyed with God was brought to immediate harm because of their rebellion. So again, to use Sam's phrase, they plunged from orbit and then fall out of bed and bunk their head. So there's this that immediacy we see there in the first part of the paragraph, but where I want to spend a little bit more time today is, is the imputed effects of that, because it doesn't stop with Adam and Eve. And one of the things, that when, if, you, if you read through uh, Dr. Renahan's commentary on this, and I would encourage you to do so, he makes the argument that this, the phrase, our first parents, in the plural, is, is placed here. And it's, all, it's also used by Westminster and Savoy. So we, we have the same language in our confessions. Was, was to address a heresy known as Socinianism. Now there are a number of, of errors, a number of, of sort of features or, or bugs, I guess we should say, in that whole Socinian system. But one of them... One of the chief ones was that the sin nature isn't really inherited, that Adam doesn't look at me or you and see the guilt of Adam. He looks at each one of us on our own terms, and only on our own terms. Well, it's, it's related to the heresy of Pelagianism, which, which said basically man is good, inherently, that he wasn't truly fallen. There's, there's, a, there's an overlap there. But Socinianism specifically just said that, that that sin nature didn't get passed on. And so one of the ways that we could wrongly, I guess, read this paragraph is that it was the, the sin of both Adam and Eve that is imputed to us. What would be the problem with that thinking? Let's kind of reason through this. If we said, okay, Adam and Eve both sinned, and the sin of both is imputed to us, then what kind of problems do we run into? Matthew? Yes. Yes. So in Romans 5, Paul makes the explicit argument that it's through the sin of Adam that we are all fallen, and that it is... is that there was, Paul makes the contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. But what other problem do we, we encounter if we say that it's the sin of both Adam and Eve that's imputed to us? We would not have a perfect Savior. Because our Lord Jesus was truly human in the sense that he was the product of a fully human woman being overcome, being she conceived of the Holy Spirit. And so the, 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 the necessity of the virgin birth, theologically, is that Jesus did not inherit a sinful nature which would have been inherited through Adam, not through Eve. You see? And so why then do... It, does the, the confession use that language, first parents? Why didn't you say, by Adam? Well, we'll look at this more next week, because the, 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 the 
Confession uses the language posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. In other words, a man and a wife, they come together, they conceive, they have a, they have a son, they have a daughter, by ordinary generation, sin is passed on. And so what, what, is, what is the language is being used, and, and this is Dr. Renahan's reasoning here is helpful, is to think through that. That phrase, our first parents, is there because at that particular time in history, men like John Owen and others said, so Sidonism is the largest threat to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because they argued, so Sidonians argued that the fall wasn't really imputed. That all of us are basically, we start from scratch. And that it's only when we actually sin that we become sinners. Matthew? Uh-huh. So your question is, is it, can we say it's a legal imputation? I, I would want to know exactly what we mean by legal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> we, we, it is the case now. With, with Jesus, we, we have to start, first of all, unique situation. That's the reason the virgin birth, that doctrine is so critical, because Jesus was not conceived by ordinary generation. It was extraordinary, right? It was above ordinary means. And so, but, but since then, every other child has been conceived by ordinary generation, meaning both parents have inherited the sin nature from Adam. And so it's not a distinction that we necessarily, I think, need to make. I don't think we say, well, the, the sin nature is coming from the father, per se, because both parents are, have a sin nature. So just speaking biologically, you know, we, we have two parts that come together, by which conception happens. Both parts are fallen. You know, right? So the, the, the composition of a human being, if we, well, that's not the right word, but, but that conception of a human being takes place with two fallen people. Correct. Right. And so we'll consider that more next week, but this idea of, of just ordinary generation, no, and, and the reason that's important is no one escapes. No one escapes the fall. And so as we contemplate these consequences that we look at today, that's, that's the key thing that we have in mind, is there were immediate consequences for Adam, Eve, Adam and Eve. And then from there, there were universal consequences for every man, every woman, born of ordinary generation. 
Now, when we use that qualifier, ordinary generation, we are necessarily accepting one man, right? The one who was not born by ordinary generation. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? Okay. So let's think about the, the, the effects, the imputed effects of the fall. So we in them, whereby death came to all all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. So we are dead in sin. Corruption is now part of the human condition from conception. Now, it's not a part of the the essential qualities of humanity. Jesus was fully human and yet sinless. So it is not necessary as a necessary ontology of being a human being. You know, you, you, there are certain things that you have to have in order to be human, right? There are certain DNA sequences, there are certain uh, body parts that you have to have or you would not be classified as a human being. Sin is not something that's a necessary feature of our humanity. But since the fall, it is a condition that every man possesses, every woman possesses. And so what we know is total depravity. It means a a, a person is wholly defiled. And the language is important in all faculties and parts of both soul and body. We know just the composition of human beings. We are composed of two basic parts. What Paul would call the inner man and the outer man. The body and the soul. There's a material part and an immaterial part. Now, within our material part, we, can, we could highlight or, or catalog more specific parts that make up the total. You know, the, the leg bone is connected to the ankle bone and so forth, right? There, there are various parts but we have two essential parts of our nature, body and soul. Listen to Herman Bobbing. This is, I think this is helpful. He said, sin did not become the substance or essence of human beings. This is important. I'm going to continue the quote just a moment, but think think this through. If we think about where are we going? We're, We're going to glory. We're going to be glorified. At which point, we will have a body like unto the glorified body of Christ. That body will be sinless. Well, does that mean we become something other than human? No. We will be glorified. We will be perfected. But it wasn't as if Adam fell, and then somehow humanity became necessarily defined by sin, where that's now a feature. It's part of our ontology part of our, the, the isness of humanity. That's not the case. So sin did not become, says Bobby, the substance or essence of human beings. The human being remained a human being, not a machine, not a wooden thing or block, not a devil, but a human being. But the human became abnormal. Though still human, its humanity is cankered and rotten. The substance of our being was totally, has totally remained. It has lost none of its strength, even though it has been deteriorated. In this way, 
all of its capacities, intellect, will, feelings, the body, have remained. We still have a mind. We still have a will. We still have the capacities that God gave to us, but now they're hindered. To use his Bobbing's language, they're cankered and rotten. And we see this effect in both body and soul, both the material part of us, and as we age, we're more and more aware of that, aren't we? You get up one morning and, well, I guess that's going to hurt from now on. Um, you know, I heard a comedian that, that said, you know, I remember as a, as a younger person, I would come limping into work or I would have a stiff neck and people, what happened? Well, I, was, I, I, I hurt this in the gym or I hurt this playing basketball. He said, now I'm at the age where I just hurt it sleeping. <laughs> I slept wrong and now I hurt. Those are what we call the noetic, N-O-E-T-I-C, noetic effects of the fall. We are, our bodies are facing corruption and we know this. Um, some are, are more uh, intensely aware of these effects than others in the providence of God. You've seen that, that degeneration of our faculties. And we see these things throughout the Scriptures. In Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord commenting on the generation of Noah. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see, it was at the, at the level of the mind, the, the level of the will, man has fallen. This is, this is the imputation of the effects of sin from Adam and Eve. We inherited this from our first parents. Jeremiah, of course, famously said, the heart is deceitful among, above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then even in the New Testament, Paul said in Titus chapter 1, to, to the pure, this is one of our footnotes here, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both, listen to this, their minds and their consciences are, are defiled. You see, sin did not have merely a superficial effect upon us. Sin is a disease that affects every aspect of our beings as human beings. That's why we call it total depravity. Not because each of us or any of us is as depraved as we possibly could be. Praise be to God, that's not the case. In fact, even as we imagine, the most wicked human beings that have ever lived, they still were not as bad as they could have been. What if Hitler had lived 970 years? What if the, the, the worst of the worst that we could think of had had the kind of life that Methuselah had, had the lifespan, or had the opportunities? So the, the common grace of God is restraining sin, but what we mean by total depravity is there's no aspect of humanity that isn't fallen, that isn't, that isn't affected by the canker and the rot of sin. Now, this is crucial for us to understand. It's not merely that human beings now, now sin. It's that from the womb, from the, from the moment that we are conceived, every aspect of our humanity is fallen. Our minds, our consciences are defiled, our wills, our intellects, our emotions, they're all being impaired. Now, the, the implications of this, the ramifications of this are significant. And just think it through, even in, in, in the area of business and commerce. 
are there implications for the fact that not only myself, but everyone that I deal with is fallen in every aspect of their being. Even the most righteous brother that I deal with is still fallen. Which means, even when he generally intends good, he might be mistaken. His intellect is impaired. His will, his motives, my motives, my will, my intellect are all impaired. And, and that doesn't mean that we, we now view everyone with, with extreme suspicion and we can't, we can't trust anyone. I just don't do business with anybody because everybody's corrupt. That's not what I'm saying, but, but, but it does shape how we think, doesn't it? It ought to. I mean, what are the implications for our marriages? You know, when I do pre-marriage counseling, I've told this before, but uh, the, the very first session, I always do this, and I've got the, the, you know, the young couple there, and they're all lovey-dovey, and they're holding hands, and they're batting their eyes at each other, and, 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 I, and they're, you know, they're Christians, so I will ask, are you, are you sinners? And they will all give me the Sunday school answer. Oh, yes, you know, yeah, Pastor, we're sinners. But if I ask them a year into marriage, they hang their head, and they say, I had no idea. I had no idea how big a sinner I am. Not because they've become a bigger sinner, it's just because marriage has the, gives the occasion to reveal those things, doesn't it? When you're living in that close of a proximity with another sinner, you, you realize <laughs> that... that uh, <laughs> Brother, we're already having some folks move in with us this week, so we're short on space. Amen, Aria. But, but don't we, and, and, and we, thankfully, by God's grace, we can laugh at those things. We can chuckle. But we also know it's very true, isn't it? Um, our parenting. I mean, as, as parents, if, if we don't recognize that from conception that these precious little ones, and they are precious, they are gifts of God, and yet everything in them, both body and soul, is cankered and rotten. It doesn't mean that that's what defines them as, as human beings. That's not the defining feature of humanity. It's not sin. It's the image of God, isn't it? But that image is painted in every respect until... The Lord regenerates them, and that process of renewal that we call sanctification begins. And it's the, can I make up a word? It's the undepraving, progressively, bit by bit, that's taking place. This has effects in, in church life. I mean, how many times have, have you been disappointed because a brother or sister has, has let you down? They've sinned against you. And, and isn't there an irony that the closer we get, the more we love one another, the more we come to depend upon each other, the more capacity we have to harm one another, don't we? I mean, no one can wound me more than my own wife. Um, if, if, if a stranger on the street said something to me and insulted me in a particular way, I could laugh it off and dismiss it because it's, it's nothing. But if Gina said the very same thing, it would wound deeply. And, and vice versa, Right? Well, the similar thing is true in, in the context of a church covenant community. 
we have the opportunity to bless one another tremendously. We also have a capacity to wound. And so we, we, this doesn't mean that we say, well, I've been to church, I've been hurt before, so I'm not joining another one. And, and we probably all know people for whom that's true, isn't it? And who've maybe even taken that position. Well, churches are full of, of hypocrites and people who don't keep their word and people who betray and they gossip and they do other things, so I'm not going to be part of that. And to some degree, all that's true. But it helps us to set our expectations in, in a realistic way, doesn't it? And, but also to, to strive together. It's the reason we have so many commands throughout the New Testament to exhort one another, to encourage one another, to admonish one another, uh, even to, to discipline one another if that's necessary. But to build up, to edify, because we're all, <laughs> we're all infected with the same condition. We all have the same cankers and rottenness. And again, that doesn't mean we look on one another with suspicion and say, well, I don't trust anything anybody at church says because we're all, we're all sinners. No, but there's a realism, isn't there? Because sometimes we can come into a, to a church and think, well, that's the one place I'll never get sinned against. Well, bless your heart. If you think you're not going to get sinned against in church. Because you will. In fact, ironically, it can be the place where you're sinned against and it, and it stings the most. Because you trust. You love. You serve. You're, you, you, you let yourself be vulnerable, Right? And that's when, precisely when we can be wounded. So it helps us with a, a sense of perspective with those, those particularly intimate relationships. I'm going to quote from Bobbink again. Um, he's wrestling through this effect of sin upon the human nature. And he argues that the will itself is totally corrupted by sin. That if you are a human being, this is the qualifier, if you are a human being, which I think that's all of us, we are totally corrupt, the will is totally corrupted by sin. But the faculty of the will as such is not lost through sin. It's a careful distinction. Do you hear it? The will is totally corrupted with sin, but that doesn't mean that the will is gone or that the will is lost, or that the will is useless. It, he goes on, its spontaneity and freedom remain even after the fall. But he says its key ethical property, which was natural to it, was lost. Well, what is this key ethical property that was lost with respect to the will? Well, he refers to this as what he calls material freedom. To distinguish, and he distinguishes material freedom from uh, formal freedom. And this material freedom is, is this. Before the fall, the mind was good and, third, and thus distinguished well and caused the will to long for the good. So before the fall, Adam and Eve naturally, automatically, completely longed for good. Not one of us can say that, can we? we? We do long for good, but not always, not completely, not thoroughly, and not without exceptions. 
Bavik goes on, the will was entirely good and inclined to do good. Moreover, the will had been created in such a way that it was natural for it to follow the good. It was a natural property of the will. So this was one of the defining features of the will of man was to pursue that which was good. Now, I don't have to persuade you as you look around the, the, the landscape of our culture today, and could we ever make that argument? Could anyone with a straight face really make the argument that, oh yeah, this is, this is the natural feature of humanity now is to pursue good? Of course not. We, we couldn't do that. But that was the case before the fall. Now, after the fall, the inclination of the will in man's fallen state is, is what? It's holy evil. After the fall, the inclination of the will in man's fallen state is holy evil. It is now, says Bobbing, diverted in another direction. It is inclined toward evil and aims at what is evil. So it's a complete reversal. Consequently, as a result of this loss, the will is now incapable of doing good. Consequently, what is left to man after the fall is a formal freedom, which is a freedom of indifference. When our mind evaluates something and finds as many reasons for as against it, and thus does not know what is good and what is evil, in that case, the will stands between the two, of course, and is unable to choose. But that is a deficiency in the will and not something lovely. The will's inability to do the good is a result of sin. Now, all of us have, ex- have experienced this. In fact, probably almost daily, maybe every day, we experience this. We, 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 we labor to, even when we want to, even when we've, we've sat down and we've prayed through a decision, we've searched the scriptures, we want to do good, but there's still a suspicion, isn't there? And what's that suspicion? Maybe it's not. Maybe I'm not making the right decision. Maybe what I'm doing isn't right. Well, that's, that itself is an effect of the fall. Before the fall, Adam and Eve never had to wrestle with that. They never had to sit there and go, I wonder if this is the right call. Because their wills were only inclined to, to good. Our wills, by nature... I should say, our our fallen nature, according to our fallen nature, our wills are inclined to evil. Now, what we're going to see as we we unpack this is that uh, paragraph 4 in particular speaks of the the redeeming work of Christ by which we are being set free from these effects of the fall. So, now this does not mean, and I I think we, we want to be very careful to distinguish this, this does not mean that man is now incapable of doing any good at all. Or that even unregenerate man is incapable of doing any good. If our theology, if our anthropology doesn't make an allowance, doesn't give us an explanation for how our pagan, unbelieving, Buddhist, Hindu, atheistic neighbor can do good things, then our, our theology is deficient, isn't it? There are, there are absolute pagans who love one another in marriage and raise their children, teach them, instruct them, and feed them, and clothe them, and, and, and teach them to, to be law-abiding 
Well, it's according to God's common grace. Their wills are fallen, and yet they still have some sense, because the works of the law are written on their hearts, of what is, what is good. They are not able to do anything which is um, ultimately pleasing to God, because their, their motives are not Godward. Does that make sense? But, but if, we, if our theology is such that, well, natural man can't do any good. Or if we take it too far even with our own children. Our children can never do any, any good thing. They can never have a good thought. They can never, they can never obey. They can never do anything because they're, because they're lost. Well, we would have a deficient understanding of, uh, of the fall. You know, we can have an insufficient understanding of the fall where we, we don't recognize how pervasive it is. That every aspect of us, every part of our, every faculty, every part, body and soul is affected. But we can go the other way and say there's nothing good left. That, that the, the, the essence of humanity, even the imago dei, the image of God, has just been obliterated. The scriptures don't teach that either. But we have to recognize that any good done is still tainted, is still defiled. And so I think we've got to wrestle through these things as, as Christians, as husbands and wives, as, as parents, as you know, people who do business in the marketplace. We've got to be able to wrestle through these kinds of issues. So our understanding of depravity from the Scripture is not that we are as depraved as we possibly could be. That's not what the total means. When we say total depravity, it doesn't mean that, that a total does not refer to the intensity or the degree to which a man is depraved. Otherwise, I mean, none of us would exist because we all would have murdered everyone, right? There would be nothing, there could be no social order at all if every man was as, as thoroughly depraved, as intensely depraved, or depraved to the degree that he might be. But the total, in total depravity, refers to the extent. It means there's nothing in us, nothing according to our humanity that isn't touched, that isn't tainted by the fall. So ne- next week, we're going to look at the transmission of this sin, you know, today, paragraph two, just if you want to have it in your, your, your notes, paragraph two is primarily about the consequences of the fall. Um, the, the consequences of the fall with respect to the depravity of man. And next week we'll look at how, how is this, we hinted at it today, but how is this transmitted? And of course the hint there is by ordinary generation. Any, any questions before we wrap it up? Matthew.
So, so, the, so if I understand the question, the question is, is, is it wrong for us to speculate or contemplate whether we would have done things differently in a state of innocency than Adam did? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Should we have? Uh, should we really have drafted Adam in the third round? We could have gotten something better in the first round. You know. Um, I, I think there's a there's just in general, there there's a caution that we ought to apply in terms of just speculating on what might have been. Um. It, it might be apocryphal, I don't know, but it was attributed to Martin Luther that he was asked one time about the existence of hell, and his, his answer was that hell was made for those who pry into the things that God has not given us to know. All right, he, so it was, it was more, um, probably a sharper tongue with, with, with knowing Luther, it was, it was something along the lines of hell was, was, was made for those seminary students who inquire into things that are basically none of their business. And so part of this is recognizing that we, this is not given to us to know. Um, we are told that Adam was created upright, he was perfect, and, and yet he fell. So for us to presume that, well, but I could have done better. You you're more than perfect then, or you would have been. I mean, it just gets into a, an area of speculation that I don't think is, I don't see a fruit in that. But what, what we need to deal with with the facts as we have them. God's word tells us very plainly who Adam was at his creation, innocent, morally upright, and that he he rebelled and sinned against a clear command of God. So there's not it's, one. It's not reasonable to assume that we would do differently. But secondarily, it's beyond what God has revealed to us. It gets us into the area of just just unhelpful speculation. Yeah. 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 Mm Mm-hmm. No, no. It wasn't a necessary feature of his humanity. Right. right. Yeah. All right. Let me, let me pray. We'll take a short, short break and gather to worship. Father, we bless you and we praise you. Lord, I pray that your spirit will help us even as we uh, continue to meditate upon these things. Uh, in many respects, things that are too wonderful for us. And yet, in your kindness and your wisdom, you have made, them so, made yourself known to us, made these things about us known. And I pray that you will help us to be, uh, to be faithful to your word, uh, to be wise in how we, we consider these things, and that above all, uh, we will glorify you in the, the scope of our redemption, reversing all of the effects of our fallen condition with a promise one day of bringing us to eternal glory in your presence, 
completely sinless and without even the possibility of falling away from you. We bless you and we praise you in Christ. Amen.